Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, and I'm 23 years old, I have 50,000 pesetas, and I'm alone in the world. And I'm Caroline Sita, and I'm a woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown. The way this podcast works is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love. Last week, we kicked off our Antonio Banderas series with The Mask of Zorro, and we told you we'd be continuing this week with women on the verge of a nervous breakdown, but that was a lie. A lie. In a last-minute switch, we've decided to swerve you, and we are going to switch our film to a different collaboration between the same lead actor, Antonio Banderas, and the same director, Pedro Almodovar, 1989's Atame, released in the United States as Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. Uh, but we hope to be able to touch at least a little bit on all five of those films those two made together in the 1980s. And there was never a world in which we were going to do an episode like this without the help of Manish Mather, whose current Twitter profile wallpaper is a screenshot reading Guion y Direccion, Pedro Almodovar. Uh, I would describe Manish as a noted Almodovar enthusiast, the host of the podcast Queer and Now, and it pod to be you, and generally a great guy to follow on Twitter. Roll Calling fans will remember his wonderfully insightful perspective on Slumdog Millionaire during our Dev Patel series. Welcome back, Manish. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be back. I'm glad that you guys are back doing episodes regularly. I really enjoy the Meg Ryan series, so I'm happy oh. to be here with Antonio. It's very exciting. You are our, definitely our first call for an Almodovar series. You have branded yourself incredibly well on Twitter, as I would say, like maybe Twitter's most noted Almodovar stan. So yeah. you are the perfect choice for this episode. Yeah, no, I'm glad to be here. You know, I love to podcast about him uh, with with people. And so I hope you guys are ready for like three (laughs) hours of this. (laughs) Let's do our longest episode ever. (laughs) We'll see. You know, that (laughs) we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So so uh, with the prompt today to basically catch everyone up. We're talking about the 1980s when Antonio Banderas was in his 20s as a period of in his career that was defined by his collaborations with Pedro Almodovar because in those 10 years, they make five films together. Those films are Labyrinth of Passion, Matador, Law of Desire, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, and Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. And I'd like to speak a little bit on the first four before we really jump into our main film today, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. But first... Since Almodovar is such a key supporting player in the Bandera stories, Caroline, would you like to set us up with a little background? I would love to. And also maybe just, and I can maybe throw to Manish here too, like, I guess just, I was was trying to start out by just like thinking about what I would say defines an Almodovar film. Mm -hmm. And I kind of settled on colorful, sensual, queer, melodramatic, darkly funny, and rooted in like spanish culture in a way where i always feel like there's like 20 percent of these films i'm not getting because i am not as familiar with like spanish culture and history how how else manish would you like define i don't know his movies or what kind of draws you to them yeah i mean a lot of what you mentioned for sure uh that's very much what i think of as well you know for me also he's someone that is very knowledgeable uh of hollywood history and, mm-hmm. you know, what, um, you know, movies like, you know, Women on the Verge, of course, and All About My Mother, um, Volver, like they take a lot of 
inspiration and references and homages to uh, Hollywood movies, especially, you know, the Joan Crawford era, the Betty Davis. Um, like Douglas you know, Sirk the, films. Yeah, yeah. Like Hitchcock. The 19, exact, oh, Hitchcock for sure. Um, that's also kind of what drew me to him because I think around the same time that I discovered Almodovar is when I was discovering a lot of that stuff as well. That's what draws me to him. Uh, and, you know, over the years, as I've watched more of his movies and watched them over and over again, you know, there's so many things that really, um, you know, uh, r- really uh, bring me to him, such as I, I, he's really about, like, screens and TV screens, movie screens, mm-hmm. you know, all, uh, all that stuff. And, and cameras, of course. Uh, and, like, movies within movies a lot of times, yeah, I feel right, like. Yeah, right, exactly. Or plays within movies or movies mm-hmm. within play. You know, it's just, it's, it's, always, it's just a lot of self-referential, metatextual stuff. So um, I think that it's... Uh, it's really fascinating to me about how he really ties all this stuff really well together. You know, the melodrama, the farce, the, the, the sexuality, the, the feminism, the, you know, some would say misogyny, whatever. It just kind of brings it all together and it really, to me, works. And, you know, when he has a really great movie like Time Me Up, Time Me Down or, you know, All About My Mother or Pain and Glory, as we saw a couple years ago, it's just so... It could be really powerful, I, I think, and truly a unique experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so this is like fun. This series, this was like my favorite thing about our podcast, Ned, and that mm-hmm. sometimes you'll throw out a person that I just don't know anything about, and this will really inspire me to like go down a rabbit hole, which mm-hmm. I'm doing with Antonio, but now this has also led me to like fill in a lot of blind spots with Almodovar. Yeah. Definitely same. Yeah. And so, like, to get so that, so part of this for me, as you had introed like five minutes ago before I derailed our. <laughs> <laughs> conversation was getting into like what who like who Almodovar is what his story is as a director um so I would say in America maybe like the most famous director from Spain although his I think his reputation in Spain is a little bit I think he's more critically respected in America than he is in Spain actually oh that's he's kind of yeah he's like a darling of America American film criticism but I think in Spain is maybe seen a little more as like just a comedic director I don't know again I'm always like ooh, I have to parse so much like cultural stuff um, yeah. which is certainly part of Almodovar's background so he's born in 1949 uh, he grows up in a small town in central Spain, and he talks a lot about, like, growing up surrounded by women, which is kind of, as Manish has hinted at, like, something that just fuels a lot of his later work. He's very interested in women and, and women's stories. A lot of this, I will say, if you've seen the movie Pain and Glory starring Antonio Banderas, uh, might sound familiar to you because that's kind of like Almodovar's auto autobiographical film. He's putting a lot of his own story into that one. Um, but he kind of knew he wanted to make movies from an early age. He went to Catholic boarding school for a while, but then he left home around age 17 to move to Madrid, which is like, you know, the big hopping city there, uh, kind of in the late 60s. And then I think something that's like really interesting about his origin is that he is growing up at the very tail end of the reign of the dictator Francisco Frederico. Franco. Franco. Wow. Why well, really? She just fell in love with yes. Generalissimo Franco. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yes. You've got mail. I got very off. distracted <laughs> thinking about the you've got mail connection, which also was, mm-hmm. I was like, what is this weird through line of Franco? Uh, hey, I mean, he, he ran a whole country. He's going to, I guess he's necessarily <laughs> going to pop up. He ran Spain. Yeah. So, yes, it is the tail end of Franco's reign, who had been ruling Spain since 
1939. And so he dies in, in 1975. And there's this movement that happens, La Movida Madrileña, which is like this it's kind of inspired by British punk and new wave, like sort of political, sort of social counterculture movement that is, I think if you watch Almodovar's like really, really early films, like I, I watch Labyrinth of Passion and it's just people who are like with cool colored hair and wearing interesting makeup and like bright clothes and leather jackets and just like this very 80s like I don't know, like gem in the holograms, <laughs> like some <laughs> sort of very like colorful eighties aesthetic. Definitely and- impossible to miss the fashion. Yes, of the when you watch these eighties films, like the outfits, the sort of as you say, like jewel tone outfits are just so. They're so good. There's so many incredible outfits in these movies, and I'm like, oh, look at that. Oh, I love her coat. Oh, I love her dress. The yes, costume is incredible and also like holds up. Like a lot of these, I was like, I feel like you could wear this today and yeah. it would still look stylish, which is not always true for eighties movies. Mm. But this is sort of like it's like a counterculture movement. It's about like artist. I think it's mostly just about like freedom in all senses of the word because that was sort of what you don't have when you're living under an oppressive dictator. Mm. So it's like sexual freedom, drug freedom. Like we're staying all night partying. Like some of it is just general like young people hedonism, but then kind of fueled by this like anti-fascist sentiment um, and just very punk rock. And so that's like what Almodovar as a young person is like, you know, kind of coming to age in and he's making these super eight short films just like with, you know, he would like just pull his friends together. They'd make a little short movie. They'd show it at a bar, but they like hadn't had the ability to record sound during the movie. So they would kind of just be like, be like a performance art piece where they're projecting the movie. And then Almodovar is like, doing commentary over it and his brother's playing a soundtrack just like weird i don't know this all feels very relatable to me ned i don't know if you feel that way but (laughs) does that sound fun or what just like weird artistic things uh eventually they pulled together money to make his first movie which is the 1980 like really low budget pepe lucci and bomb have you seen this one have you seen all of his films manish yeah Uh, back (laughs) in uh 2018 i watched all at that point, I think it had been like twenty one of his movies, uh, or twenty of them. So yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that a number of times actually, because it was recently uh, in on HBO Max uh, around this time last year. Um, a lot of his movies were available there um, for for a few months. So yeah, that movie is crazy because it's so low budget, and mm-hmm. um, when you, I, I was reading about the making of it, and uh, he was saying that. He would sometimes have to shoot, like, it took him years to make it, or, like, a year to make it, because mm-hmm. he, like, couldn't get the money for it, so, and and so he would, like, shoot one scene, and then, like, a year later, or months later, he'd shoot, like, the next scene, and then a lot of it is some uh, sketches that he thought would just be funny. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a sequence, I think it's kind of a, like, to me, the signature sequence is, like, general erections, which is, like, at a party, uh, and they have one of the characters like judging the like the penis size of all the men there, and whoever is <laughs> the winner can like pick someone, and, c- and that person has to do whatever they want. Um, to so it's like that kind of like sexual perversity, freedom, like hedonism, as you're saying, is like mm-hmm. prevalent throughout. Uh, Peppy Lucy Bomb for sure, and also Labyrinth of Passion. Yeah, and it's like very less structured. It's less you know, there's no like three act you know structure there. Mm-hmm. 
I think as he gets into his, his later 80s movies, he really starts to iron out some of that and kind of gets a better narrative, like a more cohesive narrative voice. But I think these first two movies are just really fascinating just because they're so thrown together and like wild. Um, I To me, I think they're almost like criticism proof because they're such like unique artistic expressions mm-hmm. that I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, you can think of them as problematic or whatever, but I'm kind of like, and this is the whole point. It's like the whole point is just to have this like, you know, outward expression of all this like pent up energy from the dictatorship era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think if we're trying to think of like, I don't know, references for people that haven't seen some of these movies, I would say like the there's like a John Waters element maybe yeah, to sure. some of these yeah. early movies in particular, and that they're like comedic and subversive and like you say, kind of like perverse. Yeah. <laughs> but mm-hmm. like enjoyably so for the most part. Yeah. I also feel like as you mentioned, like with some of the movies we're going to talk about as as the narrative structure becomes more traditional, you still have this kind of, I feel like you have that signature of someone who is interested in being like, how can I work this thing into the movie? How can yeah. I put it? Because you have a narrative structure, but you will have these scenes that you're like, well, I couldn't argue that that was strictly necessary to drive the like events of the plot forward in a way, but they made such a strong impression. They like created a vibe. They just put something sort of emotionally or thematically into the movie. So I feel like that sort of like sketch artist style, even if he moves away from that being sort of the defining thing, I feel like you can still feel the the sort of vestiges of that in a cool way. I think that's even prevalent even now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, parallel, I think Parallel Mothers and Pain and Glory are very sophisticated, but they have some, like, kind of interesting flourishes and sidetracks. Um, like, I'm thinking yeah. about, like, the animated sequence in Pain and Glory, which kind of something mm-hmm. he had never done before. But feels very much like, I want to put in an animated sequence to detail all of my ailments. And you're like, okay, cool, yeah. I'm there. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, he does not give a shit about, like, plot or narrative convention. Yeah. There there are times watching these movies where I want to be like, they're just so European. <laughs> like not to, to stereotype an entire continent, but there is a, I don't know. I think that there can be an art house European quality that is more abstracted than even like American indie cinema tends to be. Yeah. I mean, I think American indie cinema is actually very uh, conformist in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Um, very, yeah, you wouldn't. You know, Sundancey is sort of my non-efficient mm. term for it. Yes, mm. you, you I like would, that. You would never describe Almodovar as conformist in any way. I would say. <laughs> no. um, I do. I do. I think that what you're getting at, Caroline, is something that I. I there's a lot of times when I watch these films, or there's there's like a few like Eastern European, like there's this particular Serbian film that I'm obsessed with, where. And someday, you know, like, as well as with Asian cinema, I watch these things and sometimes I'm like, man, Americans really can only do, like, one thing at a time. (laughs) And it's so samey. Like, I think one of the first things that struck me is, like, Americans are really, like, we're doing comedy or we're doing serious, but we really struggle to, like, blend those two. Mm -hmm. And I just think they're, like, the Almodovar films for sure, and there are lots of great films from lots of different, like, world markets where you're like, holy shit, how do they switch from something being so, like goofy and farcical to something being like so intensely like grim or sad in like a like on a dime and then Mm -hmm. switch back or just have them both at the same time it's crazy but yeah it does feel european because we're really not used to that not at all and i i think even within i think even almodovar said this about his own career that it is kind of like a trajectory to getting more serious and grounded like obviously if you compare something like 
uh, the first film he makes with Antonio Banderas, which is the goofy ensemble comedy Labyrinth of Passion. You compare that to like Parallel Mothers or Pain and Glory, and like they're they do feel like very distinct movies. Like the eighties is kind of his most purely comedic era, but you're right that it's like not comedic as like American mainstream comedy. It's comedic yeah. as in like we are taking topics of kidnapping and assault and terrorism and sort of like wrapping them into this like sort of comedic yes sort of melodramatic yeah you really have to watch it to get a sense for like exactly what that tone is because there's not a there's not really a one-to-one reference Mm -hmm. it really puts like american puritanism in sharp relief when you're like oh okay wow like this is I don't think anyone would ever even attempt this you know maybe mel brooks back in the day but maybe yeah I mean, and John Waters, of course. Yeah, Caroline, when you were saying the defining things, like for me, sex would be the first thing that mm-hmm. I would mention based on the Almodovar films that I've seen, and they really have made me think, like, wow, we really do live in a pure, in a post-puritanical or just puritanical country, and just like, I mean, this the uh, watching the sex scene in "Time Me Up, Time Me Down" had me being like, man, the sex scenes in American films really suck, don't they? <laughs> I really think we have like a weak, we're a pretty weak market for that, but we can we can get to that in detail later on. Yeah, so he he makes Pepe Lucy Bomb, which uh, what I read a New Yorker article that described it as becoming like a Rocky Horror Picture Show for the Spanish. It kind of becomes this like cult classic underground movie mm-hmm. in this counterculture movement, and so he's kind of like got some little minor clout, and he's sort of uh, around this time building up his kind of like ensemble of recurring players, which is another feature of his movies, as you can tell just by how many movies he makes with Antonio Banderas. But he first meets Antonio. So Almodovar is probably like in his early 30s. Antonio Banderas is like 19 years old, has just come to Madrid to work in theater there. He's hanging out at a cafe with like some of his friends after a play. And so they're all kind of in the, you know, artistic world. So Almodovar like sits down and chats with them all for a minute. And then uh, the way the way Banderas tells it is that like, he's chatting to them all. Then at the end of the conversation, he looks over at Antonio and he says, you have a romantic face. You should be in movies. And then and then Antonio's always like, and then he left. <laughs> <laughs> Which I really feel like actually sums up quite a lot of, like, their dynamic as, like, director and whatever, muse, actor, whatever we want to call it. Um, this, like, I don't know, fascination and, like, seeing something in him and, and wanting to bring it out. Um, as we said, he... The first movie they make together is Labyrinth of Passion, that, like, very goofy ensemble comedy that's basically just, like, two, I don't know, like, new wave bands having all of these crazy interactions and all these random little subplots. Antonio's role is very small. Uh, but Almodovar said that as they worked together on that movie, that he kind of, like, realized he had something really special in Antonio Banderas. And he was like, if I had met him sooner, I would have cast him as the lead in this movie instead of this smaller role so that kind of then kicks off what we're going to talk about you know in this episode which is the the run of the next four movies which are like increasingly substantial roles and this is the time when really again like i just they're just like young artistic party people there's some quote where antonio banderas is like we were more like a rock group than a group of people that were making movies in the way that we behaved we would arrive at places and people would say "Uh oh here come the almodovar people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so i think Damn, it's just like a so lot sexy. of like right and it's just like staying up to like four or five a.m like getting drunk whatever doing drugs and then like making weird artsy movies like that's kind of the era that we're hanging out in today and i think it's a it's both a fun and like a weird <laughs> era to be hanging out in let's go through those those uh those first four 80s collabs 
and uh, and maybe get a few a few thoughts on from whoever has seen them. So, Labyrinth of Passion. That's the first one you mentioned that you described as sort of uh, more like. Well, that one's not so sketchy, or or you said it was well, kind of like an ensemble. So, this is the one that I have not seen. <laughs> so why don't one of y'all talk to us a little bit? Talk to me a little Manish, bit. About what Labyrinth are your of labyrinth passion. of passion thoughts? I I I think it's really like weird and in, in a really cool way. Um, what I remember about it is uh, like there's like incest in there. Mm-hmm. There's like uh, of course you know sexual assault is in there. Um, I think it's like if I remember correctly, it ends with like a, like a, a like the gay like prince or whatever meeting like a, a like a woman and like they're both like and she's like a nymphomaniac I think mm-hmm. and it's like oh we met now we're like cured of our like sexual deviancies his being yes. homosexuality her <laughs> being her uh, nymphomania which I think is very funny because um, I to me it's like. Almodovar poking fun at like heteronormativity and sort of this patriarchal uh, notions, especially coming from a very Catholic uh, mm-hmm. Catholic nation. Um, so yeah, very just like very like you, you could just tell that he put in all these like interesting ideas that he liked, like that sketch comedy thing, and just I, I think it's really good. I'd like to watch it again because um, I, I I think it's interesting. I'm hoping that at some point like. A lot of these early movies get released by like Criterion or mm-hmm. Kino or any of those places, Shout Factory, because I think, I think they deserve to be seen on a larger scale because I think they're very interesting and like shoddily made, but in in quite an endearing way. Like it makes sense that they're kind of this like rock group that just like parties and makes movies. Because I'm like, <laughs> that it shows it's kind of right? the feeling of yeah, like right. there's a whole sequence. So I had never seen any of these movies before, and I did a, a deep dive this week, so they're all pretty fresh in my mind. Um, but this one, there's like a whole scene that's just like at a punk rock concert and it's Almodovar is like playing the host, like up there in, you know, makeup and like semi drag and sort of like improvising a song with this, you know, gay performer that he's friends with. Like a whole segment. It's like, we're just going to watch that for a segment. And then there's going to be like a screwball comedy segment where somebody poops their pants. And then there's going to be like (laughs) kind of like a deeply upsetting incest subplot that is also comedic. And it it is a lot. It's that very endearing thing of, like a, a first film or an early film where it's not at all perfect or cohesive, yeah. but the like what you will later see in their career is all there. Um, Antonio. So what something I'm interested in, in tracing Ned and I don't know if you picked up on this as well, mm-hmm. um, but like, the, I feel like the way Almodovar uses Antonio Banderas is like so different than the way Hollywood uses him. Like it was actually yes. kind of like startling to go back and just see Antonio Banderas presented in the way he is in these films both in labyrinth of passion and especially in matador um and really in all of them but in labyrinth of passion he's like a young gay he's introduced as just like a cute gay hookup that somebody hooks up with and you're like oh that's a fun little romantic interlude and then it turns out he's like a terrorist who's actually trying to kill the person he hooked up with not knowing that they were the middle eastern prince that he was trying to hunt down and his his um talent is he's got like a super sniffers he you can like smell a shirt and then like track the person down in the city like he's a bloodhound or something but wow. it sets up this thing that i think you you probably see in matador as well which you had pointed out to me ned to check out is that like it's like a boyish innocence naivete romanticism and then also like evil sociopath like those are the two <laughs> qualities that almodovar is like 
these are what define Antonio Banderas, and he will be both simultaneously in almost all of my movies. Yes, and we're definitely going to see that a lot in today's featured film, Time Me Up, Time Me Down, that it is like there is this innocent youthfulness like even when he even into 1989 when he makes that and he's 29 years old playing a 23 year old it's it's always this idea of like someone who kind of doesn't understand the world yet that has this boyish innocence but also is this kind of big imposing like like violently animated figure with the ability to kind of like spring into action and like attack you at any moment but yeah, those are neither of those are kind of the like self-possessed sexy confidence that I think yeah. would be his main his main image in a lot of other things. It's like he's much more like insecure, oblivious, wide-eyed and naive. like volatile. Yeah, yeah, yeah naive, naive and yeah. volatile. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, both he and Pelvi Cruz are these uh, Almodovar muses, and they both make a transition to Hollywood. But you know, you know, I feel like whenever kind of they they come up, we you know, we, um, and uh, we kind of think about them as like these like very glamorous sex symbols. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at, I would love for you guys to do Penelope Cruz at some point because uh, I think you'll find a very similar thing where I think more pronounced just with her being a like a, a woman as well, but. You know, when you look at her movies in America, and especially the ones that she's been doing in like recently, like Zoolander or stuff where she's just like the sexy agent or something, mm. and then you watch her movies in Spain, and um, I'm not that familiar with her non Almodovar work, but you know, textured and interesting uses of her persona, and you know, I mean, Parallel Mothers, I think, is one of her best performances, mm-hmm. um, and because you see her go places that you, I don't think I've ever seen, even with Almodovar, but. You know, and, and Antonio Banderas, I think it's the same, where he comes to America and, you know, like you guys talked about Zorro, I feel like that, you know, persona and the Puss in Boots thing as well, like, it's it kind of stuck with him in, in a way that mm-hmm. probably hurt his career and helped it, you know, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's a double-edged sword. Um, so it's cool to see him in these, where he's very, like, in some cases feminized and and uh, weakened a little, or a little naive, as you're saying. I think especially with Matador, um, I I love the movie Matador. I think that's that movie has grown on me considerably over the over the years, um, especially in Tony Banderas, just because <clears throat> he's so boyish, he's so you know, uh, in some ways like useless or helpless. Mm-hmm, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, helpless is a good word. Especially for it. like you know the scene where he tries to um, rape the the model. Mm-hmm. And he can't even do it. And it's kind of, and she's more annoyed than anything else. Mm-hmm. She's like, this is kind of wasting my time. Another scene that has both, I would say, like, the authentic violent horror of sexual assault, but also, like, like pulls this comedy out of it. And I know yeah. that it just must sound, I think if you're unfamiliar, the idea of doing that must sound really shocking and really... Um, as you say, like like that that sounds misogynistic to describe to make like something a scene that has comedy out of something that most people would describe as essentially like just a like a horrific atrocity, yeah. and yet it feels I would say compassionate or at least like self aware in the ways that he does it. And I do think part of that is he has like he has some feminist bona fides that you can say like this isn't this isn't a guy who makes these like all male ensemble action movies and like women appear only as 
like rape victims. Like he's got lots of women rape victims, but there's also like there's just so many interesting, complex, good and bad and twisted and 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 funny and dark like women characters. Yeah, and you know, far be it for me to kind of say anything about this just because, you know, I, I'm a guy, so what do I know about this stuff? Right. But um, to me, it always seems like the uh, men are the butt of the joke in these scenes. Uh, and I, I think it, it kind of leads up to, you know, talk to her, which is one of the few times where sexual assault is actually shown very seriously and horrifically. And um, even uh, he did a movie in the mid 90s called Kika, which has a full on sexual assault scene that's like literally played for laughs. Um, and it's actually the only really good scene in that movie. I don't really care for it, but hmm. it's um, one of the few times where this is, it, it feels like something like unique and kind of interesting and funny and weird and bizarre and very Almodovar. But so, I mean, I, I always think that, you know, like in Time Me Up, Time Me Down, especially a, a lot of the, a, a lot of the sort of the comedy or the, you know, uncomfortableness is always on the part of Antonio Banderas. I, I don't mm-hmm. think, you know, Marina is really ever like the butt of the joke or coming out on, um, on the bottom of this, their power dynamic. I think she's actually has a lot more power than uh, one might think. Um, so I think that there's, yeah, I, that's my take on it. I mean, you know, I, as he's my favorite director. So I think, you know, I'm sure there are people who, uh, will have a different opinion on that and probably think that I'm reaching, which is might be true. But that's sort of my my take on when he gets to these like very touchy topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, I feel like sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Absolutely. I think mm-hmm. in Time Me Up, Time Me Down, I think everything he's doing that's subversive there does really work. I Matador was probably my least favorite of the one of these five that we that I watched for this. It felt I don't know. T- there was something about the balance there that felt off Mm -hmm. what i will say is something i think i actually i do think amodor gets praised a lot for like how well he writes women which can be very true but actually what i felt like really drawn to was like how he wrote gay men Mm -hmm. and sometimes i'm like yeah well maybe because that is your own experience like there is an honesty there and maybe i'm sometimes wary of like transposing a gay male experience onto a female experience and being like, oh, they're the same. Cause yeah. I don't know if they always are. And I do, I don't think I would say that like, he's always doing that in his films. Matador to me was the one that I just felt like what it was trying to do as like a dark comedy about like murder and rape and maybe people having magical powers or whatever. It felt the least tonally balanced in a yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Although I was really like, this was the first one of these I watched, and I was like, I just had never seen Antonio Banderas this young before. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, like, shocking to me to see him as, like, what, like a 26-year-old? And, like, to see him be boyish, which is just not a quality I would describe his American career. He's, like, such a man in his American career. And then he feels like such a boy, even if he's a dangerous boy yeah. in yeah. these, like, Spanish films. I mean, there's this just one scene where he, like... People, he's in a hospital and they carry in somebody who's bleeding and he just does this like fainting from his chair sight gag that I found extremely, extremely cute and had to go back and replay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I personally liked Matador a lot, partially because I just, I was going, that was the first of these 80s Almodovar films that I'd seen. And it just, I just felt like it took me for a ride. Like I had no idea what it was going to be about. And it kept kind of like, didn't really feel like I was catching up to it entirely until the very end and it ends in this kind of like like 
grisly but absurdist spectacle. But I just like the way in which it treats sex and death as these like intense, like inexorable drives that people feel. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely got some issues with it, but I but I enjoyed it. In Matador, there's this subplot where so Antonio Banderas's character has like confessed to rape that he did at least try to do, and then also confessed to murders that he didn't do, but clearly is just like a disturbed person and is sort of put in a psychiatric ward. But there's this mm-hmm. subplot where his psychiatrist, I think it is, like the woman looking after him, just like <laughs> immediately falls in love with him. Yes. Which to me felt it's like that same quality that Almodovar had when he sits down at the table and is like, you have a romantic face, you should be in movies. Like, there's something about, he really locks into Antonio as this person who, like, even if you know he's evil, you are still going to be in love with him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he knows, he recognizes, like, a clear magnetic mm-hmm. hotness of him, and he uses it to great effect But it's like much- hotness, it's like vulnerable hotness, which yes. I think is the key difference from the, like, Zorro is like swashbuckling, confident hotness, sometimes mm-hmm. kind of playfully comedic, but it's always like he feels like he's in control yeah. as a performer and as a character. Yeah. And then in these Almodovar movies, it's like he's a little boy who has no control, and it's only when he becomes his most vulnerable that every woman and frequently man in his life is like, well, I'm in love with you. We must protect you. And like nothing you did with your murders and rapes was your fault. Like we will yeah. take care of you. And it's such a fascinating like understanding of his screen yeah. like presence and energy feels, feels like he's getting mothered a lot or kind of mm-hmm. like kinky mothered a lot yes, in a lot of kink- these <laughs> a lot of these films yes there is a sense i was trying to think if there was a like another director actor pairing that felt the same way to me and the closest i could come was like how greta gerwig sees timothy chalamet i was just gonna say <laughs> yeah timmy definitely has that quality of like yeah just you know like a movie like dune you know, where you're just like, oh, man, I just want to, like, protect you. <laughs> yeah. Like, the way in, like, in like in Lady Bird, it's like Timothy Chalamet is, like, the horrible fuck boy, but he's, like, kind of appealing. And then that leads into mm-hmm. being, like, Laurie and Little Women. Like, there's yeah. something there that yeah. feels similar to me to how Elmodovar is seeing Antonio Banderas. I think y'all are on to something. Yeah. Okay, so I didn't see Law of Desire. Can y'all tell me about that? Yeah, Manish, what do you think of this one? Oh, I think this movie's great. Uh, I, I think it's quite fascinating. Uh, to me, it's kind of like that like fatal attraction type mm-hmm. erotic thriller, which is very dangerous. It's like, you know, like uh, Antonio Banderas has that, you know, vulnerable hotness to him, but there's also that element of like danger too. And like, we've seen that with all these movies where there's like this like sense of violence that is actually mm-hmm. kind of engaging and attractive and, and desirable in a kind of this weird perverse way and i think law of desire really taps into that and uh i think Almodovar said that uh law of desire and bad education and pain and glory kind of work as a little trifecta yeah and which i think is fascinating because all three of them are very different um but they have this like you know, very like like the Catholic guilt. I mean, of course, parts of Law of Desire really kind of echo back into Bad Education and into Pain and Glory uh, in a very like self-referential way. Um, and Almodovar does that a lot, you know, especially in these later movies. Um, but I find to be really interesting is about this like themes of like homosexuality within the Catholic Church and mm. sort of this like repressed desire and uh, really like 
you know, it's we don't we don't really see homosexuality depicted in this very erotic way in America. At least not not in this exact way where um, you know, even a movie like Calm by Your Name, which is very European itself, like there's still a little bit of that like shy away from it kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And I think with uh, Law of Desire, it's so front and center. I mean, it's such an erotic movie in so many in, in ways that is unsettling too, because you're just not used to it. At least not, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not. So yeah. um, I really would recommend Law of Desire because I think it's just a fascinating thriller. It has such good twists and turns and, it's so, it just has that quality that you'd see in like a fatal attraction type or, you know, movies like that. None of the good mm-hmm. ones are, are like body heat, you know, that kind of like intense like sex and death and violence, but, you know. Basic uh, instinct. Yeah, basic instinct, like that whole genre. Yeah. Yeah, I really loved Love, Desire as well. And I was picking up on that a sense of sort of it being autobiographical in a way it centers on the main character is a filmmaker um, who's gay. And I would say almost the second lead is his sister. Who's a transgender actress. Yeah. The character is a transgender actress. Um, although she has less like plot again, it's like, they're not plot driven movies per se. Like the, the people that get mm-hmm. the most screen time are not necessarily tied to the plot. So I would say yeah. the two main characters are a gay director and his sister but then the main plot is this love triangle where the director, whose name is Pablo, is like in love with a young guy named Juan who doesn't quite love him back. So they're kind of like struggling in what their dynamic is. And then he kind of goes to hook up with Antonio Banderas's character, who's literally named Antonio, which I also find very fascinating to be this far into a collaboration. And they're like naming you're playing a character that's named after you um so he has this fling with like a fan who then becomes like this obsessive like like you're saying the fatal attraction like obsessive um possessive wanting to you know win his love or do anything he can to get him and eventually goes to like murderous levels ned it's actually very similar to the character that antonio banderas plays in tie me up tie me down so even if you haven't seen law of desire you have like seen that (laughs) that sort of character element of it it's kind of a ricky-esque yes for sure okay yeah. Um, but gay, yeah. And I think you're right, Manish, that it is so the queerness of the movies, the like gay characters, they just like exist. It's not like even in Call Me By Your Name, it's kind of like we're building up to a sexual awakening and that's the plot of the movie. Yeah. Here it's like the plot of the movie is a love triangle and the love triangle happens to be gay. Right, and we're getting right. into the specifics of like this kind of gay hookup culture, but it's not like the plot is we need to explain gay hookup culture to right. the, our audience. It's like, that's just what it exists in. And kind of crazy to think like you move 10 years forward into the future, like theoretically progressively into the future. And Antonio Banderas is playing mostly to an American audience who would be so scandalized to see him like kiss a man. Well, even in like Philadelphia, which I think probably was a movie that maybe they looked to him because he had had all these gay roles previously. But even in that, it's like, you know, it's very like, I think that movie, there's a lot of great things about that movie, but it's a very like sweet chase. Like if most they have like one brief kiss Mm-hmm. in you know the 90s and then it is funny to see like there are just full-on elaborate gay sex scenes in love desire which i think is not something you think of as like a 1980s movie staple mm-hmm. and it is yeah i think even for spain maybe i was trying i was struggling to get a sense of like how much this was progressive in spain versus just from an american perspective it sounds like it was even somewhat unusual for a within spain to be this like 
Yeah. Casually. I, that's one queer. thing that I don't quite know about Amoldovar is that like how much is it just like me as like a dumb American being like <laughs> oh my god wow this is so sexy versus like or people in Spain also like shocked by it I, I haven't been able to figure that out or understand that I I'm sure it was less shocking than it is for an American audience but there seemed to be some quotes from Antonio Banderas where he was saying that it was still somewhat taboo or unusual to just kind of be playing a gay role like enough so that he kind of brought it up as like oh you know, he was saying, like, it should be no big deal, but it was kind of considered a big deal at the time. It's just that, yeah, the difference between, like, what pushing the boundaries in Philadelphia looks like versus what, like, pushing the boundaries in Law of mm-hmm. Desire looks yeah, like is. Right. <laughs> yeah. Polar opposites. So then they go on to make Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, which I did see. And I just, <laughs> just mm-hmm. love this movie. I thought it was so funny. This f- feels to me... At least of the ones I saw, and even from your descriptions, the most kind of like a traditionally just like upbeat farce. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really like, it feels like a farce structurally in the sense of like, there's a woman, uh, Carmen Maura, who like has been in, who is the sort of like uh, psychologist or, or doctor you mentioned in uh, in uh, Matador and mm-hmm. uh, was the, the, the sister, sister in Law of mm-hmm. Desire. Um, so she's, she's front and center as this woman trying to, like, get over a breakup slash, like, get back in touch with this, like, elusive voice actor, like, sexy older man. And, like, there's, it's like the bed is on fire and then people are accidentally taking sleeping pills and, like, having to, like, carry each other's bodies around. And there's uh, just, like, that that feels sort of, like, high farce. And yet it does just feel, I think of farce when we describe it in an American or in a British sense as being kind of like the whole point is like it's surface level. It's like, it's, it's sexy. It's comical. The timing is good, but there's something about this, like how intensely stylish it is and Mm. how like genuinely sexy it is. That just also feels uh, like it, like it kind of is another genre of its own to say nothing of the fact that he works in terrorists again somehow <laughs> another interest of his how do y'all how do y'all feel about women on the verge yeah i think it's i mean not only in one of my favorite on one of our movies but one of my favorite movies period um and i think what i love about it is how much it's so steeped in hollywood history i mean it has like homages to like the birds and rear window and uh johnny guitar and it's like you don't even you wouldn't even expect it in a movie like this um and I'm sure I'm forgetting other kind of more obvious and uh, more obvious references. And I, I feel like it's it's a movie that really I think gets more and more interesting the more I watch it. Like the more mm-hmm. I kind of pick up on its motifs of you know recorded voices and talking and and stuff like that. And um, you know sound of course. And you know with her being a, a dubbing artist professionally, uh, yeah. Carmen Mora's character. And it's interesting. I mean I. You know, again, this movie has that like instant attraction to Antonio Banderas, where you know Peppa is meeting her like you know lover's son for the first time. Immediately is like considers him like a son, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, even though he has like show signs of being just like his father, and that he like cheats on his fiance right in front of her while she's like passed immediately. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's and, just like he just like there's another lady there, and they just like kind of 
all of a sudden they're like kissing. It's like out of nowhere. <laughs> it's so great. It's so well yeah. played. Um, and uh, you know, when you had initially uh, suggested it for this episode, I mean, I was kind of excited because it's not a starring role, but he had it's uh, such a he's like the one major male character in this like mm-hmm. sea of women, and uh, mm-hmm. and how he has different relationships. Each one, I think, is really interesting and. Again, it has that like very like naive but kind of a little dangerous quality to him, and it's I mean it's a very cute performance I think, and because um, it's it's very funny, it's it's a little awkward, but it's also very very sexy in a way. Like, yeah, it has that like oh. that like nerd look, you know, with his glasses. Yes, <laughs> his his glasses must and talk hair. About the entire <laughs> yeah, his whole look is so good. He looks so hot, and and but it is as you say, it's kind of like kind of like guileless. He's wearing this like big baggy suit that like yeah doesn't fit him but somehow like that is sexier yeah. <laughs> it's so it's so interesting that like like that he again it's like it is a different way of channeling the idea that like one thing this guy can bring is this like you can't describe it you can't pin it down like ineffable sexual energy yeah that like even though he is theoretically just like a guy coming to look at a you know con- like buying a condo and then he's kind of accidentally caught up in this this intrigue that like part of his plot is just all these people having this magnetic attraction to right. him right. not in a not in a one dimensional way but in a way that feels i don't know this just it's an it's another example of like the sexuality in these movies feels really earned really like i don't know just like bodily uh authentic in a way um so yeah, he's he's it's a very like we we did as as you were sort of going to do. This was originally going to be the movie, and then we switched it because we're like, you know, it's such a small part for him. Let's actually talk yeah. about one where he's kind of front and center. But it is a fun, you know. I was originally drawn to that because that was such a fun movie, and because it is a fun performance that kind of shows a very different side of him. I mean, it also makes sense to do time me up, time me down because, as you mentioned, it's like he's building towards the lead role, right? It's like he's in all these supporting roles or minor roles and then all this stuff just kind of gets, um, you know, put in a, a blender and then we get his performance in Time Me Up, Time Me Down, which I think is a culmination of all the work he had been doing mm-hmm. in, the, in the 80s. Yes, yeah. it kind of feels like a lot of these movies have a lot of things going on and Time Me Up, Time Me Down, I do like, and I'm excited to talk about the way that it kind of is like, as if you'd like taken like all the other plots from Women on the Verge and kind of pushed them out of the way, and you just have like mm-hmm. it's like it's like you just have one sort of angle between them, which is sort of interesting. But mm-hmm. part of the reason too, I was a little more drawn to tie me up, tie me down for this conversation is rather than Women on the Verge, which I also really really enjoyed. But it feels like the other four to me, it's like all the same themes repeating of the like boyish and danger, and it's actually interesting how much Women on the Verge. It's like just comedic antonio like maybe there's there's definitely the sexiness i think less the danger Mm -hmm. but it is more just like nerdy i just if you haven't seen this movie please just like pick up your phone and google what antonio banderas looks like in this movie (laughs) because personally it was like life-changing for me yeah (laughs) yeah it's like i people i posted a picture on twitter and some people were describing it as like nerdy or like hotter Barton Fink, but for me, I was seeing like Hank Azaria in Friends meets Moritz from Spring Awakening, <laughs> like the big hair, oh, yeah. but then that. also the nerdy glasses. It's just like a full comedic, stuttering, cutesy, like super 
indeed. I would say this is like almost pure boyishness. And then <laughs> tie me up, tie me down is like, now let's go to the, almost the other. Like let's, yeah. we've gotten your, yeah. the full boyishness out of the way. Now we can lean back into the, well, the it's, darker psychopath. It's kind of nice having him in Women of the Verge because he doesn't like, he's kind of such a, like a passive reactive character, except for these like momentary, like outbursts of following his sexual impulses. But it allows sort of other characters to like take the four. Um, mm-hmm. And then that's very different in Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, where he clearly like initiates the the whole plot. So mm-hmm. so let's let's talk about Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. Do you want to? Somebody want to give a, a plot <laughs> synopsis real fast, like a quick a quick blurb? Yeah. The, so the basic idea is that Antonio Banderas is Ricky, who is this uh, young troubled kid who's kind of basically grown up in a, a psych ward, gets let let out because he's been deemed that he's like cured by a judge, and uh, he just has not been cured. <laughs> so he goes to kidnap his famous actress, who What's formerly cured, you know? who formerly um, did porn movies, used to be uh, addicted to heroin, but has now kind of like gotten over the drug addiction, is making more of like a I don't know, weird art house horror movie, Um, but then gets kidnapped by Antonio Banderas. And most of the movie is just the two of them in rooms together in which uh, they are, she is tied up and he's the kidnapper, but again, has this boyish quality. And it it is kind of like a beauty and the beast arc of falling in love with your Mm -hmm. kidnapper. Although I would say with much more of a like wry, I don't know if satirical is the right word, but there is a, it's not just like a fully earnest version of that story. Although it's also not, not a fully earnest mm-hmm. version of that story. Um, and in the end, she is slowly along the way, like kind of falling for him. Um, the title comes because at one point they kind of seem like they're just genuinely into each other. And he's like, well, I have to go somewhere. If I, if I, if I don't tie you up this time, will you stay here? And she's like, I don't know if I will, so you better tie me up anyway. You better tie me up. So it's kind of getting into her, I don't know, complicity in this. Eventually they are separated, but the end of the movie is them reuniting. They decide they're in love. It feels very genuinely romantic. And then we get this sort of graduate style ending where what seems to be the happy running away becomes this uh, very kind of somber reflection on her face of like, oh, fuck, what have I done? And then cut to credits because I think that's the nature of these movies. One of the challenges with giving a plot synopsis, and I like yours. I like yours better than the Wikipedia one. Because uh, so I was talking with Emily about me watching this movie and then she watched, the, she she read the Wikipedia summary and I was like, wow, sounds crazy. And I And I read it after that and was like, huh, you know, I'm not, I don't agree with everything on this Wikipedia summary. So, like, as as you compare it to Beauty and the Beast, like, Beauty and the Beast is a story of, like, he's ugly on the outside, but the more she gets to know him, she sees that he has beauty on the inside. And this is not that. <laughs> this is not... It's like, as you say, like, is it earnest? Is it ironic? As with all the, like, so many of the things we're talking about in all these Almodovar films, it's, I think you'll find it's a little bit of both, where... So much in this is so charged with with ambiguity and with like ambivalence on the part of the characters. So particularly the the Wikipedia article, which mentions at the end, like 
they begin to sing and they drive up like a normal family. I'm like, that's quite editorial to say that. <laughs> yeah. I do not think that is how I would characterize <laughs> that's like, it. Yeah, that's not at all. There's I, there's really no way you can interpret that scene as if they're a happy family. <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> Nor is there a way, frankly, like it is a scene that defies a dis- Like, I think also to say, to write a Wikipedia article where like, you say like, they drive away and she realizes with horror what she's done. That would also be- yeah. Yeah. A disingenuous representation of what it is to watch that scene, which is a great example of the many ways in the movie where you're like, I'm not quite sure what to make of what I'm seeing here. You know, it's like with the ending, maybe this is a funny way to go at it, but the ending scene, as you mentioned, like he and the sister are singing along to the radio uh, to this great pops, resistere, which was like very stuck in my head for the rest of the day. I was just walking around my apartment. Um, and because of that, I was watching them who were mm-hmm. singing. And then I just kind of noticed like three quarters of the way through that. Uh, oh my gosh, what's her name? Marina, I mean, Marina. Marina, Marina. I was like Victoria uh, Abril. Um, that she's got tears in her eyes. And then I had to go back and watch the whole thing again because she does this great you know, like we talked about, like Meg Ryan, like the long take, yeah. like working yourself up to tears. She just goes through a very interesting journey in that scene. And I think, as you mentioned, I do think The Graduate is not a bad comparison at all. Uh, it's like, it's just very ambiguous. You're like, this is good. This is good. <laughs> this is bad. Uh, they made or did they? Uh, this is like a lot of question marks there. And those run all the way through it, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I I love the ending. I think the ending is really what clinches this movie for me for a number of reasons. Um, I would put money on the fact that Almodovar is directly referencing The Graduate. I'm sure he's seen the movie, and I'm sure that it it was on his mind, maybe subconsciously, but I would would really put money on that. I I think what's interesting is that, you know, I've seen this movie a number of times, and and every time I kind of have a different take on the ending. I think... When I was very young, I thought of it as like a happy ending. Um, and then, you know, as of course, as I got older, and I'm pretty sure I saw The Graduate after I saw this movie. So uh, mm-hmm. maybe. I, like, I, I, hey, a tie me up, tie me down ending. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, wow, Mike. Um, what a ripoff. Uh, no, but I think that, um, <laughs> you know, what's interesting is uh, that, like, you know, when I was watching it today, I'm thinking, like, is, is her hesitation at the end that she is now tying herself down to this, you know, psycho guy that kidnapped her? Or is it that the transgressiveness of their relationship isn't quite there anymore now that they, Mm -hmm. now that her sister approves and they're singing along to a song? And I'm like, wow, that's, is she kind of just like, has, has, has their relationship kind of lost the mojo of this mm. like hot and sexy, dangerous thing where she's being tied up and tied, you know, tied up. And um, because it's also worth noting that kind of the, one of the major turnarounds for her is when he comes back from uh, trying to score some drugs for her. And uh, you know, she, he gets beat up, which is very funny. And <laughs> um, he's, you know, she's tending to him and caring for him. And, <clears throat> You know, if I recall correctly, that's when they have sex is after that. Yes. Immediately after, right? So yes. to me, that's like, 
you know, there's that like power dynamic that's like constantly shifting between them. And now that you know, if she's gonna if he's gonna live with her and her and her with her sister, and now they might actually have this like happy family thing. Like, well, kind of, what's the danger of this relationship? I mean, she is someone that works in horror films and probably had a very you know somewhat sketchy life before, mm-hmm. and I think as her her sister is always worried about a relapse, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, she might be someone that has this like attraction to danger, and now like he might not be dangerous anymore because now he's just going to be like the brother-in-law. So that was kind yeah. of my my take on the on the ending today, which you know I think is different from my ending what I saw this time last year, which is that you know it was this like you know pure graduate thing of like oh no I'm really you know tied down now to this mm-hmm. like psychopath. Well, and we should plug that if you want more of Manisha's thoughts <laughs> on this. <laughs> film he did he did generously agree to come on our podcast and discuss this having already last year recorded a full episode on it for a pod to be you which you should also go check out and while you're there while you're in that feed i can't remember if we've plugged this this on our podcast but manisha ned also recorded a podcast about the new west side story and the old west side story so that's right go ahead and hit download on those two episodes (laughs) and the wedding singer yeah oh yes and of course me with the wedding singer you've got three downloads your first command google what antonio banderas looks like in woman (laughs) breakdown head over to a pod to be you and download those three episodes are you taking notes we've got your whole afternoon figured out (laughs) yeah (laughs) we'll put it all in the show notes for you (laughs) (laughs) your day i am really fascinated by the moment you're talking about manish where they do finally like consummate the relationship, which is a very yeah. hot sex scene. Oh, my but God. I think there's like two things that lead to that. One is that he comes back all beaten up, and there's this real shift where he has gone from like more aggressive captor to completely vulnerable person. Yeah. But the scene, sort of simultaneous to him being beaten up, is the scene where she has been she has been really trying to escape like the entire time. I think he uh, Almodor does a good job of like really having her be smart about mm-hmm. the escape attempts and like purposeful and so she kind of has one last big escape attempt because she finds a lighter and is able to actually like burn through the ropes and is trying every window and every door it is like so desperate to escape then she here she kind of knows he's coming back so she kind of ties herself up so that he doesn't know she tried to escape Mm -hmm. so it is like she has made her last gasp at escaping and realize that's just like fundamentally impossible for her to escape then he comes back and is all of a sudden very vulnerable and then they get together and I, I sort of don't think it's entirely wrong to read this movie as a commentary on, like, heterosexual yeah, <laughs> marriage totally. being, like, you are worn down because you're literally trapped, and also you have, like, glimpses of vulnerability that are appealing, and that sort of being what leads to the consummation of the relationship, and then that also being whatever fuels whatever's happening in the ending of, like, regret, you know? Mm-hmm. I was reminded in that scene, which is really the scene where she's caring for him, which is one where you like, you know, we're talking about his vulnerability. That is definitely Antonio like channeling his most like wounded puppy. Like he just seems like all of the sort of hardness has gone out of him through this ordeal. And he just literally seems like a kid who is like, like, like fallen off his bike and is like mm-hmm. being like patched up by his mother. He's just got his his like big wide eyes are just kind of looking up like kind of like empty and oblivious and dewy. And she it's kind of like it's 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 well staged in that it sort of like naturally evolves from like like 
her like dabbing at his wounds to like dabbing at his wounds and like kissing them a little bit and she's like kissing him on the side of the face and then she's kissing him on the side of the mouth and then they're like making out and then it like cuts to that but it it reminded me of phantom thread another movie that at least i know manish and i like yeah yeah. i do i love phantom for that yeah Yeah. so the way in which that and i and and then i had i felt like there were some general associations where it's like it's a movie about a relationship that is a toxic codependency, but maybe not in the way you first thought. <laughs> That's just filled with filled with surprises. And particularly in that way, the sort of truth of like caring for someone who's like completely debilitated, like that yeah. I don't know what it is that it does to you, but it does something that really like brings out that affection. And the way in which like, you know, as we say, there's a number of factors there, but it is this moment of her feeling like she is taking care of him that I mm-hmm. think allows them to sort of cross this line from like captor and captive. Also, to the way else. He, he so she kisses him, and his face is the funniest thing. Like he is so <laughs> shocked. Yeah, there's this energy of like, this is what you wanted this whole time <laughs> because he had he goes in th- th- through this whole kidnapping. He's like, listen, I'm not trying to like hurt you i just know in my heart that you will one day fall in love with me and i will be the father of your children we just need to like you just need to be kidnapped until it happens like he has this real confidence that will happen and then when it finally does happen he's like kind of it seems like he's very confused his plan actually worked and then equally confused that it was the vulnerability that did it for her as opposed to any of the other like tactics he had tried and it was such a funny sort of like role reversal or power reversal i guess where all of a sudden she becomes yeah, into it in a way he was clearly not expecting, and his little shocked face is, was so funny to me. Yeah, that, that's really great. Um, yeah, it, it's it's really funny because uh, it's almost like when um, you know, like I've heard like some of my like guy friends, or you know, they're it's like they're always afraid to show like vulnerability, you know, with women, and you have to be this like macho guy, and not every woman, you know is turned off by that, but I know a lot of my female friends are. Um, And so, uh, and there, I'm always like, you know, if you just like, you know, like a a lot of guys I know, like don't like to dance at like weddings and stuff. Mm -hmm. They're like, I'm going to look silly. And I'm like, I think girls would like it if you dance because Mm -hmm. like that shows that you like are vulnerable. You can be that vulnerable. You can have that. Like, so I I think it's kind of an interesting little, um, yeah, I, I do think this is a little commentary or a little like poking fun at this sort of like some like the, the silliness of like heterosexual mating mm-hmm. <laughs> of how like you have to play these roles. And I mean, it's definitely present there in, you know, within the homosexual com- community, that's for sure. But I think, you know, Almodovar is sort of, it, it, it might not even be like straight versus gay. It could just be like dating practices of just like, all this like push and pull and like the weird things that turn people on and what turns them off. And, um, you know, as, as they're having this very, like, you know, they're playing house and being domestic, watching TV, eating dinner together. Mm-hmm. Um, you sort of realize that like how much of like, how many relationships are where it's kind of like, you're almost being held captive by your relationship. Mm-hmm. It might not be yeah. like literal rope, but it could just be like, you know, your kids or your finances or whatever. And everyone's just cut or just like, um, you know, just being sort of complacent, complacent, you know, and that's what's mm-hmm. tying you down to, to the people that you're, you're with. And I think he's sort of making a lot of fun about that, about this sort of thing. And I feel like when people critique this movie about, oh, it's about Stockholm syndrome, it glamorizes kidnapping, whatever. I think 
to me, it's just a lot of, a lot of our taking sort of normal dating practices to like the extreme and just showing mm-hmm. like, you know, this woman is literally held captive, but like, aren't we all held captive? Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of saying like, isn't it always all, all relationships are kind of this insane under the surface? Yeah. Yeah. This is just one where you see it explicitly. And I, I'm so interested in what you said about roles because it really is like, it's a guy who in a very, boyish youthful way i mean he comes out of this institution so he has essentially like no real world experience institution where this is another thread like he slept with all the doctors and nurses because (laughs) again everyone is like you are a psychopath but i need to take care of you by having sex with you the director of the hospital like breaks down in tears when yeah when she's releasing him she's (laughs) like like, because of all the mad passionate moments you've given me (laughs) yes yes she's like yeah you'll be free but you'll be alone like you won't have me anymore (laughs) So it's so it's so funny when you first see him and that where it's like he's this like chipper, extremely hot, kind of like apparently crazy, oblivious dude, like walking around this his little world where he knows everybody and he's like fucked all of the women there um, or all of whoever there. And uh, but then they're like, you're going out in the civilized world and he kind of looks around. There's a shot of him walking through a crowd looking around like, man, oh, man, this is it. This is wild. Um, I mean, they, they do mention that he's been out in the world before, but but this idea of. He has this very simple view of the world, and he mm-hmm. has this, like, you get the idea. I don't know if they ever show him watching TV in the institution, but, you know, I'm just going to say it's it's almost over our world. So, of course, he's been watching TV. Yeah, He's got these, like, for me, the, the, the funniest sort of runner is this little, like, honey, I'm home. He, like, every time he comes to the door, he goes, like, yeah. he does, like, yeah. just exactly this whistle that my mom used to do. Um, <laughs> and it's just, like, and when he says, uh, uh, there's a moment where they're, like brushing their teeth or something like looking mm-hmm. at the mirror. He says, uh, I like being in the bathroom like you, like a married couple that's going out. Maybe that's them getting ready when they're like handcuffing themselves. Literally. Yeah. When he's putting a fake mustache on, call back to Zorro. Yes. Yeah. He's putting a fake mustache on like Zorro. And he's putting a fake mustache on again, like, like putting on this costume of like, look, look at us. We're a grown up married couple. So we're going to go out. So just put on your clothes, put on the handcuffs that keep you attached to me when we go out <laughs> in the world. Hold my hand because you have to because it hides the fact we're tied together. Like all of these things. And as you mentioned, Manish, like when they're eating dinner and things, it all feels like this sort of play acting version of married life that has been built up inside, like logistically inside of this, of this kidnapping. And now I'm just thinking about, yeah, like all the moments when it's like he forces her to hold his hand. Like that is an out, like an outlandish like kidnapping plot version of like yeah that happens all the time in couples it's like we need to look we're going to a, we're going to a party like don't don't snip at me when we walk in like hold my mm-hmm. hand and look like we're yeah it's just like it is <laughs> it sort of looks at all of the ways in which we like perform these roles in relationships oh this is this is exactly the kind of conversation i like to have about movies in the podcast where i'm like i'm like oh there's something else i like about it i hadn't thought about that before realizing yeah. things as but this we being go. my first watch you know so yeah it's really cool I think this movie, what I really like about this, especially in comparison to something like Matador, is I feel like this is really tonally cohesive mm-hmm. in a way that I think if when I don't like an Almodovar movie, it's because I feel like they can be a little bit episodic or choppy or I don't know. They're, they're not all, yeah, scattered. It's not like they're all coming together as a whole. And this movie has a lot of random through lines. Like there's a whole subplot about the the film that Mariana's making. That's her name, right? Marina. Marina. Marina, thank She's you. She's making Midnight of. Phantom. Yeah. 
she there's like and there's like a subplot about this like crazy horny director that is just like obsessed with her and none of these add to the they don't they don't contribute to the plot per se but they all feel tonally cohesive and it feels like even if the movie is not it's not a simple movie where it's like one to one this is a satire about marriage and if you know this directly relates to this it's it's more complicated than that but it all feels cohesive yeah and and cohesive in the comedic slash dramatic tone and i think that's what i respond to the most about it and why it doesn't just read as like oh, problematic, falling in love with your kidnapper. Like, clearly there's so much more <laughs> going on here I than think, that. I uh, think, yeah, no, I totally agree with you because I think it's all just, it feels very consistent. Um, and one thing about that director is, he, I think he's really funny, not because he's funny, but the woman that's always with him, who's always, I think mm-hmm. it's his wife, mm-hmm. who's always just like saying like, Max, you know, or like, shut up, or apologizing <laughs> for him. Yeah. And, you know, I guess you could sort of do like a, a parallel to like, that's another sort of satire of marriage of being like, this woman should leave this man or like, he should be not allowed in society. But instead of really holding him accountable, she just is enabling him by just like, very weakly apologizing for him or, you know, telling him to be quiet or something, but not doing anything about it. So I I think, I think that it does tie in a little, but I agree that it's very much like just a part of this sort of universe of that, like, you know, all these sort of like subplots that just don't really mean anything, but just feel on brand. They feel Mm -hmm. like they're, you know, in line with sort of, the general, you know, com- social commentary of this movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I like that character of uh, Maximo, the yeah. per- played by Francisco Robal, who's sort of feels. He reminds me a little bit of Yvonne, the absent love interest in Women on the Verge, the, mm-hmm. in that they both feel like these sort of like great esteemed dons of the Spanish cinema, but are essentially sort of like horny oafs yeah. who like mm-hmm. everyone in the movie seems to respect, but you kind of see you're like, there's just not much going on yeah. there. Yeah. He's perpetually the the concept is that he is kind of like a famed director who has recently had a stroke, now uses a wheelchair, and is sort of making a movie that may or may not be like one of the last movies he's able to make. Mm-hmm. Which is so everyone's kind of like giving him even more permission to just kind of be like a weirdo pervy guy, which yeah. also feels kind of like a commentary on just filmmaking as much as marriage and relationships. Yes. And he keeps just being like, well, I'm in love with my lead actress, so she's supposed to die in the movie, but that would be too tragic. She can't die, so I'll like rewrite the whole movie so that she lives. And- yeah, he's, as he explains this to her while she has this like prop knife sticking out of the back of her head, she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I love a, I'll just say, I, I love a fake movie within a movie set. In a For movie, sure. I'm like, God, yeah. I'm just eating that, eating that up. For sure, yeah. I would actually watch Midnight Phantom. I think it sounds pretty cool. I'm very interested. I mean, the image of the like that sort of like sexy phantom with his weird mask yeah, on, kind of looking yeah. like the guy from Mad Max Two, is like, right. I'm like, oh, what's going on here? <laughs> Do you know what I had forgotten? I put this on in the background today to kind of re- refresh my memory. Mm-hmm. There's like, it, it, again, this is like such a classic Almodovar thing where it feels like in a normal movie you are introducing a subplot where a reporter that's there sort of interviewing the cast and crew, it turns out she had previously been dating the guy that's playing the like big muscly villain and they mm-hmm. have a little exchange and you're like, oh, this will be setting up a subplot that comes back. But it's like, that's no, it. that's, that's just part of, of the texture of the movie is that we are yeah. briefly checking in on this couple who dealt with their uh, breakup by like, she has like gained weight and become a journalist and he has become like a muscle man who does horror <laughs> mm-hmm. movies. And that's just kind of there in the background. That to me feels like, that to me is of a piece with the fact that when they go to the pharmacy, the pharmacist yeah. is like having sex. 
That is just part of what I feel is like one of Almodovar's like great thematic explorations, which is that like everything is sex and relationships. And I'm like, yeah, I don't disagree. Uh, I think I, yeah. I like the, the idea that it's like that's sort of pervading everything everywhere. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about um, I just love Marina as yes. a character. Mm-hmm. I love Victoria Brill's performance. I think it's such a she just feels so well defined in a way that is so in opposition to what I don't know the American films often try to do when they're like writing the quote unquote strong female character. And I don't know, they have to be so like didactic about it. Like, I feel like Marina is strong in that she's just like well drawn and all of her motivation is always very clear. And this like toughness, but this empathy, I just find it all so compelling. Like, I thought she was such a great lead for this movie. Totally. And I think she has to sort of carry the weight of all the like really interesting central ambiguities of the film, like her sort of really like constantly evolving, like swinging, like pendulum swinging relationship to how she even feels about this guy. Because another thing that makes it different than Beauty and the Beast is like Beauty and the Beast is kind of linear. I mean, I guess there's like a, there's like a, she has to go back to, I'm thinking of just the 90s animated Beauty and the Beast. I know it's an old story, but like, I guess the point is like, that is a linear change from, like, I don't like you to I do like you. And mm-hmm. this, the fact that, like, she is tied up and is, like, trying to get out and he's forcing her and the relationship has one character and it slowly evolves in the way that we talked about that sort of climaxes with the sex scene and then has the the scene that we mentioned where, like, the power of that, like, of him saying, like, I don't want to tie you, like, should I tie you up or will you run? And she sort of, like, thinks on it and says, like, I don't know. You'd better tie mm-hmm. me up. That is, like, the way she sells that line does so much, like, work for the movie, for, like, the interesting sort of, like, mysterious tension of her being, like, I don't know what I will do. So let me practically suggest that you'd better <laughs> you'd better tie me up. And then And then, like, she sort of, like, that next tying up, like, that's a ritual you've seen a number of times, but, like, the way that one is characterized by, like, her sort of complicity in it mm-hmm. and, like, her assisting as well as the sort of swelling Ennio Morricone music, that's just really great. And then so – but then he goes out and uh, her sister – I'm just losing the names. I can remember the actor names. It's Lola Leon, but what's her sister's Wasn't name? It Lola? Lola, great. Her sister Lola then, like, I think comes in and finds her there. Now I'm trying Mm -hmm. to remember. It's So the sisters kind of walk, they're in somebody else's apartment that the sister's kind of, like, house-sitting, so Mm -hmm. she goes by to check out. And what happens is that Marina is, she realizes she could, like, kind of at this point call for the sister to come find her, but basically doesn't until the sister's about to open the door where she's in, and then she's like, I'm in here, like, (laughs) come rescue me. Like, she's really sort of in the moment trying to decide like do i want to be rescued or not yes. and then kind of once it becomes inevitable that she will be found out then she's like oh yeah it's a bummer i got kidnapped yes. but you can see her face sort of trying to figure out what she actually even wants and she then goes and takes the little box of like heart box of chocolates and the drawing that he made for her yeah, which is such a beautiful little thing yeah she takes these tokens and then you know she goes back so she basically like you watch her really struggle with this whole thing this whole like 
what do I do? And like, what are my feelings inside? Which is, again, as we say, like an exaggerated version of like what it feels like to be, I don't know, like in love or to have a complicated like relationship. It's just as like, it just is really like she performs that, um, that central question so well. And, and I think, as you say, like there are a lot of really well, well sketched details of her character that make her feel, I don't know, recognizable. And, 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 and as you say, like she also doesn't fall into the other, uh, strong female character trap, which is just be this like good Mary Sue. Mm-hmm. Like she's she's got her own sort of like background struggles, which don't end up necessarily becoming the bulk of the plot, but are a key component of it. She feels like a character with a real history, even though she is like a young character. I think you were saying this before, Manish, that she feels like she's had kind of a troubled life. Like she's on the set with this director who is kind of just like a gross perv. Yeah. But she's like, oh, this is the nicest a director's ever treated me, which I think implies a lot about what her life has been like and everyone's constantly checking in on if she's relapsed um, with her drug addiction. And you kind of feel all of that backstory in the way she's just like reacting to the entire kidnapping, you know, like that sort of like she's been through a lot, which does not mean she just gives into this. Like there's a strength to that, but it does mean she is like familiar in a way or like, she's not one to sort of like panic and get hysterical. Yeah. There's a practicality to her, and I find that just very compelling to watch. Yeah, I, I I agree with everything you both are saying. I mean, I think she's a woman that's always in conflict, and she's always contradicting herself, which I think mm-hmm. is more is what makes her such an engaging, compelling character versus someone that's always trying to escape. And it's it's you know, I was thinking about you know, like when you break up with someone, you kind of have that feeling of like loss, and you have the mementos, you have the mem- and it's. I think in some ways it's sort of that like weird extreme version of that where it's just that like she did have this like life with him as you know mm-hmm. it's you know predicated on kidnapping whatever sure but you know if they were you know this movie is essentially a two-hander um for the most part of it especially when the two of them and they have these little adventures like going to the pharmacy and and all that and and when when she's you know with her sister and out of the situation She's very conflicted, and I think that's so. I agree with what you're saying. It's so well played, and that it's 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 like you you would think that she'd be relieved or grateful that she's out of it, and you know she can continue her life. But she's so conflicted. And then one of my favorite parts of the movie is when you know he she finds him on top of the in that like fort or whatever that is, and mm-hmm. it's it's played like this like romantic comedy like rush the airport thing where. You know, she's at the gate, and she's like, "I can't." Or he's like, "You came for me," and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and it has this like very like rom com thing, and um, it's even like film, like the way she's lit as she's like going in through that entrance. Um, yeah, and the way that it's like shot and edited feels very much like the ending of a more conventional, you know, romantic comedy. And um, so it's like you can it's, sometimes the, there's a, this like contradiction to her in such a um it's like you know you say her motivations are clear and i agree with you but also i think it's almost unclear to her kind of like what she really wants and to me that makes her a much more well-drawn character because we're all walking contradictions and we all you know have that push and pull with ourselves about what we want and what we think we want and 
what we don't want it and it's, it's, it's always so complicated so mm-hmm. and i think victoria Briel, you know she's kind of an underrated on moldovar muse she's you know she's in this movie she's in um high heels which i also really liked and um a few others i think and i, th- I think she uh, has this um she has this quality to her where she's like strong but also vulnerable and you Very know, girly. I, yeah, girly, and you know, just like the way the way she like wears dresses, I, mm-hmm. such a like random thing to notice. But no, I know exactly what you're like, talking about. It's just she has this very like feminine quality to her. And I really appreciate that. Uh, there aren't really any of these like Amaldivar female characters that have that like didactic, you know, strength to them. There's no like. I'm a strong woman and I'm not going to take, you know, that stuff is, I don't know. The older I get, the more boring that is to Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. I appreciate someone who, I mean, even with male characters, I appreciate when there's that like push and pull, which is why I appreciate movies like Phantom Thread, which has this very intense dynamic with these characters that like don't actually know what they want from Mm -hmm. each other or from themselves. Yeah. Well, this is all push and pull. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Push and pull is all the way through this, no doubt. And there's really good sort of layers to it. Like we talked about the big sort of actual climax where they kiss and have sex, but there's little moments before that that are building to it as well. Like mm-hmm. there's a scene, I can't quite remember the order. There's one scene where he comes back and she pretends to be asleep and he does <laughs> this very obvious, like I'm talking to myself and like narrating what I'm doing. Yeah. Like, oh, should I do something to her? No, no, I have to be noble. I'll just go to sleep. And then I think Antonio Banderas plays it really well, where he is like overacting, and then she does think he's asleep and goes to try to steal his keys, and he's like, "Couldn't you tell I was testing?" You? <laughs> <laughs> very funny. Which is all very funny to me. And there's this amazing yeah. shot where they're sort of both in bed facing the same direction and both of their eyes are open but they're both ostensibly pretending to be yeah. asleep incredible it's just like such scene a cool shot there's another scene where i think the first big power shift is when he's kind of been the like kidnapper in control he goes to let her go to the bathroom and then she just likes she's just, just like she's tried a bunch of tactics to physically escape and then she's just like look buddy i will never be in love with you you're pathetic like i don't like anything about you and it Again, it's like both kind of moving and kind of funny because it actually really upsets him. And then he goes and he, he like cries. starts crying. He but then he pretends like he's not bed. crying. <laughs> and then he's like, he's tying her up and he's like, how could you have been so rude to me? Like that really hurt my feelings. Do you not care about me as a person? Like no one's ever been that rude to me before. And it's so like his immediate going to self-center his own experience, I think is such a funny observation. But is that first shift where she sees him more vulnerable than she's been than he's been before yeah and that is kind of like building up tearing down her walls a little bit to to build to the eventual like them getting together yeah he's kind of an interesting he's kind of an interesting counterpoint to her because she has to do a lot of this stuff she's got a lot of like interiority like i I feel like she might even have like I feel like she just doesn't actually have that many lines for the amount of screen time she has there's Mm -hmm. a lot of like looking and reacting and, and thinking about things Whereas his character, by his nature and the way he's written, uh, and you know, there's no point in which they give a medical term where they're like, "Oh, his his uh, his mental illness is this." So I d- I don't know what it is. I think they just kind of use it in like a, I don't know, a twentieth or nineteenth century like. Yeah. He was unwell. He had he was <laughs> so, but it's like he just wears everything on his sleeve, and when he tries to conceal it, and it's in a way that's like extremely clunky and obvious, like he. Like he, you know, is like, oh, I'm not crying, but but he tends to pretty much just like 
pour his emotions and thoughts out into the world. Assuming they're like kind of supposed to be somewhat the same age. It's like she has lived so much of a life for how young he she is. And Mm -hmm. he's lived like nothing of a life for for how how, old he is. How old he is. is. And I feel like you're so right that it's like she has so much interiority and he has almost like none. Like he's all surface. Yes. And that's such an interesting contrast between yeah, the two of them. I mean, especially because his um, the sort of like domestic life that he is trying to build is very much like you know as you were saying earlier, Ned, like this very like TV friendly kind of thing. You know, very much like I'm going to go out, you're going to be at home, and we're going to get married, we're going to have kids without even sort of un- re- knowing what her family plans are. She might not want mm-hmm. kids, or you know, she might not even be able to have kids. She might not want to get married. She might actually be you know, a lesbian, like, who knows, right? He, it's yeah. all, everything is just very much like this, like, cookie-cutter existence for, for him. And uh, there's no room for complex, complexity in his in his life. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a really great point that he's all surface and she's all under the surface because I think, you know, what she says and what she does and how she feels are often at conflict with each other mm-hmm. in a really interesting way. Yeah. Can... We also talk about the scene where he breaks into her dressing room, puts on this like wig that's in there that just kind of makes to find him some look way to segue like... to this. There's no segue. But I just we need to talk it. about it. I, we yeah. just need to talk about it. Please. It like kind of looks like it's like a glam rock, like kiss style wig, and like kind of mimes playing guitar. <laughs> Goes out to meet her, and the way he chooses to impress her on their first meeting is to do a handstand. <laughs> She's like, he's like, can we talk? And she's like, not now. And she goes away and he goes like, wait, wait, wait. And, like just jumps and then he's up like, look at me. Step. It is the most tapping into that. Like, he is just a little boy. He's yeah. like, the way I get this woman to, it's like, well, guess what? I can do a handstand. Do you want to see me do it? I mean, and I, yeah. yeah, I think he's literally just like, watch me. Like, look at me do this, mom. It is that kinky mom thing. Whichever one of you said that yeah. as a descriptor. It's a great, it's a great, it's a great descriptor um, from Ned, I think. Yeah. I, I think what's interesting is that, you know, he has that, he's like a little boy. And if you think about it, like, if he's having an affair with the, like, the director of his hospital and with, you know, presumably yeah. his psychiatrist or whoever, like, <laughs> there's definitely a way in which that can, like, you know, I mean, I'm no psychologist, but, like, I imagine, like, there, from what I understand, like, that could, like, stunt your growth. And that's why he's so obsessed with this, like, mommy and daddy role play, because it's, like, mm-hmm. you know, looking for that authority figure, looking for that, like, very conventional, you know, life. I mean, we don't know much about his family life. I mean, he kind of shares a little, but, you know, I don't imagine he lived in, you know, a white picket fence house, you know, as no. probably troubled childhood. So... It's like he's, I mean, it's very funny and very, like, charming and cute, but also I imagine it's sort of emblematic of sort of this, like, his, like, messed up, you know, mm-hmm. upbringing and psychology and stuff like that. And I think that I had some, I read some quote somewhere about how Amodovar said he doesn't usually write characters for specific actors, but mm-hmm. that he did really write this character with Antonio Banderas in mind, which I think you really see with through throughout the other movies we talked about. It's like taking all those various qualities yeah. and the boyishness from Matador and Women on the Verge and then the sort of like terrorist. possessiveness. <laughs> yeah, the terrorist and then the possessiveness of love, desire, which again, I think is such an interesting double feature with this. It's like it all culminates in this. Yeah in this movie that then is kind of like the last time they work together for a little bit. It's like they build up to this 
thing, and then he, and then Antonio Banderas goes off to his American career. Is the next film they do the skin I live in, or is there one? Before yeah. That? Yeah. They take a so so we talked about this last week how there was like the eighties was kind of the years that Antonio Banderas was doing theater and film in Spain and then makes this big shift to the nineties and they do reunite. Um but there's just like cute interviews where <laughs> where Almodovar would be like, And then you left me, you left me for Hollywood. <laughs> so I think there's that little bit of the dynamic of like splitting up for like almost close to two decades actually. I'm yeah. not sure if this is my own conjecture or if I actually read this somewhere, but I remember Pain and Glory, the relationship between the director and the actor there is sort of a parallel to him and Antonio mm-hmm. Banderas in real life. Um, and also Carmen Mora, who was in, mm-hmm. you know, they had also had a major falling out until they did Volver. So I, I think that relationship in Pain and Glory is sort of a, a, a like combination of those two yeah. relationships. Or, uh, and uh, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, I can imagine there was some level of betrayal when Antonio Banderas and maybe Penelope Cruz as well. Like uh, I mean, she works with him more consistently while she's in America as well. But you know, that whole like two decade gap and he goes off to become, because Almodovar for the most part has avoided coming to Hollywood. I think now he's mm-hmm. a little bit more interested in working with English speaking actresses mm-hmm. um, like Tilda Swinton. And I think he's always kind of Meryl Streep, I think was supposed to be in Julieta. And yeah. then he, he made that into a Spanish movie. I'm like, Meryl, you can learn Spanish. I think that's within your <laughs> capability. Uh, but, um, so I think he's toying with it now, but I think for a while he was always avoiding coming to Hollywood. And mm-hmm. I feel like there were definitely opportunities and offers for him to do that. Um, just cause I think Hollywood is always trying to squeeze out whatever they can from international people, um, mm-hmm. international creators. So I, I think there's that level of like, okay, now you're going to go be this like huge star in America. And maybe there was some resentment and maybe he's kind of putting that on a little bit for the interviews and who knows, but I think it's interesting. And I, and I, I think, you know, there's really, you know, I'd be interested to see if he works with Antonio Banderas or Penelope Cruz again after Pain and Glory and Parallel Mothers because those also feel like big culmination roles, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, like where do you go from, you know, Pain and Glory? With yeah. I mean, yeah. there, I'm, there's there's a way, there's a way. But um, it's like kind of like, what do you do after Time You Have Time You Down where it's like you have this like opus, this like magnum opus of a character that you give to your muse and then there's really... Nowhere else. I mean, I can imagine that's why Antonio Banderas was so um, attracted to going to Hollywood. Is that like you have this? Um, you know, he kind of did while he could in Spain, and now he, you know, there's a whole new avenue for him to explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is also fascinating to me that the guy who threw out the guy who's about ten years younger than you, and sort of throughout your two parallel early careers, you're like, I see him as this like psychotic boyish person. And then a couple decades later, you're like, and that's the person I want to play me in my autobiographical <laughs> film. Like, I feel like we could do a whole podcast that is just like the psychological implications of, <laughs> of their all home. of the dynamic of their like working relationship and how that reflects elements of their yeah, own yeah. personalities. I mean, and Antonio is even more villainous in The Skin I Live In. Uh, Skin I Live In is really interesting. That movie is like, I think that's like a horror movie. And it's so like... I find that movie to be very gross and icky and unsettling in a very interesting way. I know a lot of people kind of get turned off by, like, how extreme that movie goes. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I said, you know, who am I to say anything about anything about that? But um, I think that about, like, kind of the themes of that movie. But for me, I'm like, I, you know, you never see Almodovar go that dark. I mean, talk Mm -hmm. to her for sure. It's definitely that dark. But rarely does he get to go to those places. So I I think that's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, it's... 
I agree with you. I think he's playing all these like psych- psychotic characters, and then the skin I live in, and then it's like, hey, you know, please be me in my like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> autobiographical like, you know, self exploration, Fellini esque type thing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So sweet though. <laughs> so there's also, I think part of this too is that. I don't know if I would say Almodovar is difficult, but I think he's very particular in how he works with actors. Yeah. And that is what leads to some of these. He has kind of has like famous falling outs over the years, even if they then eventually sort of reunite. Mm-hmm. Um, he likes he likes a lot of rehearsal process. and But he likes everything about the script to be like figured out before filming. Like I think the idea of like, we're on set, we're getting into the psychology of the characters, we're figuring everything out together is like not his jam. I think he's more of the type of the director who's like, the actor is sort of my puppet. I can act out what I want them to do and then they should do it as I want it. And I will sort of do a bunch of different takes. And it's not a lot of, (laughs) there's one story about like, I think it was on Julieta maybe where they did like 20 takes of a scene and the actress was freaking out because she was like, clearly there must be something wrong, but he's not really telling me what's wrong about it. So I'm just in this hell of doing it over and over again. And then they came back the next day. They did it once and it was perfect. And later Almodovar was like, oh yeah, there was just a continuity error error with your scarf. (laughs) But it was like, instead of having informed her of that in any way, it sort of was, I don't know. He he seems to be a person that likes to keep, like all of his collaborators talk about him as someone who keeps a lot of personal boundaries Mm. like for as transgressive and open as his films are his collaborators are always like he keeps a very sort of closed off professional relationship interesting to the point where even in pain and glory antonio banderas was like it was not until i read this script that i like knew all of these facts about you know pedro's life like that that there had been a lot of it's just such an it's he seems like such an interesting guy because it's like i'm gonna go out and party and like you know, do all these wild things and make these wild movies. But then I also have these very particular boundaries and these very meticulous ways of working. And what was <laughs> there was this is from a New Yorker article, and the article said actors are often both thrilled and terrified by Amodvar's technique. Uh, the the author says when I told Banderas that Amodvar said he directed him as if Banderas were a child, Banderas did not disagree. He also told me I try to become almost a white canvas so he can paint on it. Fascinating. And yeah. he calls it, Bandera says that the experience is a very creative hell. He added, <laughs> when you finish the process, you are exhausted and very insecure. But when you see it, the result is spectacular. Which I, and I think a lot, like, I've heard interviews with Penelope Cruz where she's saying the same thing. It's not even like they're saying, like, this is a negative, like, it's an interesting dynamic where they're sort of like, this is a very difficult process in some ways, but also rewarding in others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it just can be tense, I think, in a way that sometimes people are like, okay, we need a little bit of a break from you, and then we can come together and, yeah, and make I mean, another movie together. You know, Almodovar works with a lot of the same people, both in front and behind the camera, which to me is always a signifier that, you know, clearly something is working with this creative collaboration, you know, yeah. like we, we hear mm-hmm. so many stories about directors who are, you know, tyrants and they're abusive and they're yelling all the time. And, um, you know, I always kind of take notice, well, okay, but the, the, these actors are in the same movies. Like, you know, I think the famous one I always think of is like Jennifer Lawrence and David O. Russell, which is, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, now Just I don't think she's working with him anymore, but even like in the thick of it, you know, she did joy. And, yeah. um, and it's like, 
maybe that works for her and that's part of her process and I imagine they're also taking a break you know maybe maybe she'll go back to him at some point um in you know in a decade or whatever but you know it makes me wonder like uh, about that and like I don't have much experience with directing but I I mean I'd be having a steam director on this podcast here um, <laughs> I think that like there is silly like is this like I, I feel like it's just it can be part of the thing because like you have you have this vision and it's hard to it, it's I mean is it hard to like ex, ex, you know extract that from people who and it's just like I, I I don't know what it's like so yeah. mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just like curious or wondering if this is just like it's just par for the course of being in this position but then you hear about directors that aren't like that and they seem to be mm-hmm. working well so. I think I think there's a number of different ways to go through it and I mean like I I am not I'm not so very experienced but definitely I know enough about myself at this point to say like I'm not that style of director at all I'm so yeah. maybe to a fault. Def- definitely in, in some processes to a fault, like concerned with like, is everyone having a good time? Is everyone feeling okay right now? And like kind of over explaining my own mental process and those kind yeah. of, I would be kind of at the other end of the spectrum from an Almodovar, but it definitely like, th- that is a way of engaging with it with when people have a vision. And I- I'll say this, like a lesson that I am trying to learn is that sort of thing of being like, it is not necessarily key that everyone understand how this is going to work right now if I am sure it's going to work and if I can get us there. You know, it's like it, it's actually not entirely yeah. necessary that everyone see why a certain like take or a certain way of doing it is going to be good if you are really confident that it will work. And, you know, mm-hmm. the challenge is sometimes you get it into the edit and you're like, oh, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't work but uh but yeah i at- think that's yeah i was just gonna say yeah. i think that's spot on ned what you're saying to a motivar's process if i can read one more quote Please. from antonio banderas who says sometimes the process is out of the box and so unusual the things that he may ask you to do are unusual some american actors couldn't cope they come with a lot of bs and they work their characters from the inside out stanislavski and other techniques pedro doesn't give a shit about that (laughs) if you're open and you follow instructions it goes well but if you oppose that or if you try to impose your own ideas over his you're going to have a very hard confrontation so i think ned you're totally right that it's like almodovar is like i know what i'm doing i have the vision for what this is going to be just trust me and if actors are trying to sort of yeah. It sounds like he's more open to the collaboration and the rehearsal process, and he doesn't really want to then continue that when it's actually yeah. filming on a mm-hmm. set. That, I mean, to me, that does feel more old Hollywood, you know, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. Manish, that he's sort of a student of that whole world. I mean, I do feel like when I imagine like a 1940s studio system set, it's like, oh, we're just going where we're told. We're employees of the of the studio and the director has the vision and none of us may be privy to that by, before the end of it. Um, but I do think in, in this case, I think that becomes more of a problem when it's like he was bullying us around and then the movie sucked. But in the Almodovar's <laughs> case, it's really like the proof is in the pudding. Like time and time again, I think he's making the movies that at least to my mind are quite good and quite strong in their vision. Like whether or not you think that vision was ultimately worthwhile, like He's clearly mm-hmm. got one and is executing it over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think that there's, you know, there's, of course, a balance to it. But, you know, when, when the movies are this good and, and mm-hmm. the actors are saying, like, you know, I'll drop everything to work with him. You know, I mean, I think Penelope Cruz has said that a lot during her 
press tour mm-hmm. and some of that could just be like you know media diplomacy yeah. but i think a lot of it is genuine because she's kind of um she's held true to that you know she's worked with him so many times and just even the last you know 15 years yeah yeah and i also think people aren't necessarily saying like oh he's an abusive director it's more like he's yeah. very detached in a way that right is not that sort of like caretaking instinct he's not and it's touchy sometimes, maybe it's He's not touchy-feely, which again is so funny to me when his movies are so, I mean, they're not touchy-feely, but they're so open and expressive. Like, it's funny that they come from a a somewhat more rigid creative project, uh, uh, like process. It's interesting. I mean, I think it's like, yeah, I I really can't, you know, I I don't know what to, I don't know how to reconcile that. I totally agree with you. I think it's such a strange, it's such a strange situation. I mean, he puts so much like heat and emotion and passion in his films and then yeah, I mean, I've read interviews, I've watched interviews, and he's just very, like, yeah, he's very, like, removed. He's not at all this, like, you know, fury presence. Yeah. Uh, which I think is interesting. I mean, it makes him more fascinating to me as as a you know, human being. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. There was some quote that I thought you would like, Manish, where he was, like, talking about how he would go to America and had, like, a magazine editor friend, and the friend was saying, he was always asking, who are the next photographers? Who are the new fashion designers? Who are the new young people making movies? He didn't care if they were successful or rich. He liked to meet the freaks. If you were a freak, he liked you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That, to me, is a very, like, warm side of it. You know, in public appearances, he's very charming. But It's such an interesting mix, Uh, yeah, Yeah. as a guy. We're we're not going to talk about the skin I live in. Um, It is interesting to think about. That's the two 2011 sort of reunion project for Banderas yes. and Almodovar. I found it, I, I watched it in the past month as a, as a candidate and I, I found it absolutely chilling. Yeah. And uh, it is interesting though to see this conversation we're having. I mean, it is about, it is about a, a sort of like ruthlessly efficient man. I mean, it has many similarities to this in that it's about a, a kidnapping, but it is one that is so, the scales are tipped like so, 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 so far. It's about he's he's completely in control, and he's uh you know he's remaking he's remaking someone um according to his vision without yeah without any interest in their uh autonomy uh, autonomy or like enthusiastic participation. So it yeah. is interesting to see that as like a very dark 2011 refraction of maybe mm-hmm. this this uh sort of thing maybe i'm totally projecting but uh, I don't, no i'm no, projecting I the same way yeah, i'm really like something yeah yeah is banderas someone that almodovar like projects certain he like wants him to act out certain qualities that reflect him and i don't know i think there's something there yeah but there's lots of definitely in, in time me up time me down it is all about these sort of like interesting contradictions and I want to sh- I want to shout out this quote that you pulled, Caroline. I think from that same New Yorker article of his stories blurred the lines between gay and straight, coerced and consensual, comedy and melodrama, the funny and the repulsive, high and low art. And I'm like, God damn, that's right, they did. They sure did. Uh, at least the you know, the ones that I've been watching for this. Um, you know, this this particular film doesn't particularly doesn't seem entirely interested in the, the, the line between gay and straight, although the other ones we watched did, but definitely coerced and consensual. That is fully on the table here. Uh, that is like the sort of like central thing. But comedy and melodrama, the funny and the repulsive, high and low art, those are also really like, it is so hard to place this film squarely in one side of the spectrum of any of those 
spectra that were just listed there. And uh, I would also add in there artifice and authenticity. authenticity. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because I, I've, I've, there was a quote in the Criterion booklet, um, which I don't have right in front of me, so I can't read it out loud. But uh, I read it this morning while I was watching the movie, and it was something where, you know, he talks a lot about art, his relationship to artifice and how... You know, there's like truth in artifice or there's realism in artifice. And, you know, as, as I'm getting older, I'm like less interested in realism because I'm like anyone could just, you know, make a real uh, movies are inherently unrealistic mm-hmm. just because, you know, there's someone doing the machinations um, off screen. Yeah. But so I, I, I mean, Almodovar being a, you know, sort of a, you know, North Star director for me, I think. Obviously, artifice and melodrama and farce are very much a part of things I appreciate. So I think there's definitely, you know, I think that's always going to be at play for him. You know, this idea of like something being artificial and how that kind of presents some kind of truth or or authenticity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Manish, can I ask? both for your listeners, but actually really mostly for Ned and me, what other <laughs> Almodovar movies are like your top tier? What would you recommend Ned yeah, and I and our listeners check out? For sure. Um, I would say like the main, main ones you should watch are Volver, All About My Mother, Bad Education, um, uh, Talk to Her, I think is really fascinating. Um, the ones that we, we hit that weren't a part of this of this episode, uh, you know, Julieta, I think is really uh, that's grown on me as well. Um, and I feel like there's like a major one that I'm forgetting, and it's going to eat me up. But yeah, those are like well, the main Pain and Glory ones. and Parallel Mothers are the two newest. Yeah, of ones. course. Yeah, those as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you can really go into any of his eras, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s, and there's stuff to really enjoy there. But I think, like, the major classics, like the Volver, the mm-hmm. All About My Other, Bad Education, um, you know, Women on the Verge, those are all just, you know, stellar pieces of work. Uh, all About My Mother, I think, has emerged as, like, my top tier, number one favorite. I I've seen, I watched that movie, like, twice in, like, three days last year and wow. watched it again, like, a few months ago. That was one I was I have not seen. I was hoping to rewatch before this, but now you have inspired yeah. me to make it my next... My yeah. next one I check out. You got, you got to do cool. it. Yeah. I mean, just the, the number of like vivid images that have really stuck in my head from these these films of his that I've watched in the past month have just been really, I think he's just like a, a total visual visionary as well as just creating yeah. these really interesting characters and situations. And just such a different take on Antonio Banderas. Like yes. I really cannot get over how mind blowing it was for me to dive into this period of his career that I had never seen before mm-hmm. and just see i don't know there was, i i read some article where he was talking they were asking about sort of what it's like to work in hollywood versus spain and like if, i don't know if the acting's different or whatever but he said actually the main thing is that you know working and predominantly living sort of your life in english in america he was like actually the biggest hurdle is that just when you go out to dinner with people like because you you know the conversations are so quick you can't follow it makes you come across as like a simple or like unintelligent person. Mm -hmm. And he was saying he found that that was a big hurdle for him was, yeah, that he just came across like sort of simple, which I think maybe some American people might be inclined to like, think of him as like fun blockbuster guy um, who maybe is doing one particular type of performance. And it's like very satisfying to go back or, you know, to go to something like pain and glory and see him 
giving these performances in his native language and see all of these different facets that are just not as much a part of his Hollywood work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything else from Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down you're going to regret if you don't shout it out? Any last looks, favorite scenes? Um, I just really love the scene when he tries to buy the drugs and gets beat up. (laughs) And there's a really funny line when I think Rossi De Palma is like, you know, you can either, it's like he doesn't have any money, but you can either like rape him or take his boots. And the guy's like, I'll take his boots. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really weird, funny line. But again, like that sort of transgressiveness, that like perverseness that is so appealing. I love that then the other guy's like, what do I get? And she's like, you just enjoy the experience you say this. He's like, yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) You just get this little glimpse of like their whole story. Yeah. Oh, what's going on there? Very, very funny. I would just really point to his role in Labyrinth of Passion, but especially his role in Law of Desire as as yeah. Law of Desire especially is something else to check out. Like I think it is a similar character to Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, but in a psych- slightly different tone, you know, a supporting role, a gay love story, whatever, a story of obsession. And I think that that's also a really, like, I would really recommend checking that one out, especially when sure. he is, you know, like in, in Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, he is older than the character he's playing and i think especially in those earlier movies where he like in matador and law of desire like he really looks so young and it really really taps into that boyishness in labyrinth of passion there's a scene where he's like his hookup has just left and so he's just like in his little like underwear and then his roommates are in the room and he's gonna talk to them so he just like puts on a little jacket and then like sitting in a chair in his underwear and i was like this is it's really blowing my mind to see this little baby antonio banderas just sitting here in his underwear and jacket plotting terrorism yeah uh from tie me up tie me down i i've alluded to this multiple times but just in the same way in which like i really on our zorro episode wanted to like shout out that like performing sword fights is part of acting like that's that's performance and it's impressive and it requires technical virtuosity and he acts through it performing a sex scene i don't know much Mm. about this i don't know what it's like on the on set really but whatever they were doing in this (laughs) was working that you just like it's these long shots i mean i think a a Mm. lot of it is like a lot of american sex scenes to me i think are very like close-ups and montages where it's like hand touches butt skin you know that kind Mm -hmm. of thing but like this is like long takes of their faces as they like go through dialogue and like physically simulate this act and Mm -hmm. whatever they're doing it's working so (laughs) it's a crazy scene almodovar was even saying he was like i felt like they're pretty much always filmed from like the waist up at most you see her boobs sometimes Mm -hmm. but even compared to like i don't know some american sex scenes like what you're actually physically seeing is not that crazy but it was it feels so visceral that they gave this movie an end they like basically made up the nc-17 rating for this movie because they and and he was like i don't understand like it's not actually explicit but it's like the way they're acting it is so much that they were like we can't give this an r it's we're so puritanical this is like shocked us to our core it's one of those like pornography i can't i can't define it but i'll know it when i see it people just watch this and they just felt like i don't know this just feels like like we we have to rate it this is really sex yeah i don't know if you guys have been listening to uh karina longworth's erotic thriller podcast Mm. miniseries but she mentions something she mentions stuff like this a lot on on her podcast which is that 
a lot of reviews from that time will call me pornographic and she's like there's no sex scenes in it but it's just this like it's like the vibe or the aesthetic or that like visceral feeling of like sexuality it's i think like sensuality is almost more erotic than sexuality and like you know we can see nudity anywhere yeah exactly he taps into this like you know, this like kind of red hot, kind of like lusty sensuality that it feels very shocking, even if you're just seeing people like, you know, shoulder up, which is like nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think Americans can't, don't really know how to get there. Yeah. <laughs> and the same time. with Love Desire. Yeah. It's like very cool to see that in, in gay sex yeah. scenes, like the same sort of energy yeah. presented in a, in a 1987 yeah. movie. Yeah. Now we've made a lot of reference in this episode to the kind of pure stoic badass action figures that Antonio Banderas goes on to play in Hollywood in the 90s and uh, I think it's time for us to take a look at one of those we're gonna see a lot of that as well as a lot of guns explosions and mariachi music in Robert Rodriguez's 1995 actioner Desperado but first thank you so much Manish for joining us for the discussion I cannot imagine having it without you it was so good to have your thoughts um, if you will please uh, remind our listeners where where can they find you yeah the best place to find me is on Twitter uh, at vertigay314 that's v-e-r-t-i-g-a-y 314 can I interrupt will you yeah. will you please share for our listeners the story of that username oh yeah no it's the it's my, my three guys so vertigo is Hitchcock gay is Almodovar and 314 is Ang Lee for Life of Pi. <laughs> oh, I, lo- I did not know that was the origin. That's so I just good. thought that was so fun, and I yeah. want to make sure we got that on here. Yeah, it was a uh, stroke of... Because I've been looking for... Since I'm, you know, as I mentioned off mic, I've been going back to school, and I'm you know switching careers. I'm like, I need to have a less, you know, out there uh, username on Twitter. So I could a little boy, little be a little bit more anon so when when that came out i was like that's you know my, my three the three tenets of my personality mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah and also letterbox under my name with each mother i was gonna say um you can find my podcast uh at it on twitter and also at queer not pod uh, that's a little bit more of an extended hiatus queer now. I because uh, I think we're both doing uh, Dave and I are both doing other projects, but the whole library is there for you, um, including an episode on pain and glory. And um, yeah, it had to be you slowly coming back to normal. So those are the main places to find so me. So vertigay three one four on Twitter. Yeah, I was gonna say definitely the letterbox too. Like as I was going through and logging all these films Great. I was watching. I was like, of course, Manisha has all of these logged like five <laughs> times. It was so fun to see all of your different takes on them like throughout the years. Oh, that you. was really, that was really fun. So definitely follow over there. Caroline, I don't know if I'm friends with you on Letterboxd. Well, Ned, I don't want to be friends with you on Letterboxd. <laughs> oh, I'm just damn. kidding. I didn't know you use Letterboxd. Yeah. We can be friends yeah. on there. Follow Ned I and I on Letterboxd, you. I guess. Oh, can I, I, whoa, I almost forgot to do this to plug this. Please. Um, I made us an Instagram for roll calling when I yep. totally forgot to mention on the show. If you'd like to follow roll calling on Instagram, if that's more your platform of choice, we're over there at roll calling. So, um, yeah, that was an exciting Very development. Cool. Yeah. So us. we're, we're all three of us all over social media. Follow us so that we continue to exist because you don't, <laughs> you don't remember, I just think you can't passively exist on social media. So, Yeah. Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker and Caroline Sita. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wanserski. 
as previously mentioned, you can follow us on Twitter or newly on Instagram. Thank you, Caroline. Uh, on either platform, you can find us at RollCalling or you can email us at RollCalling at gmail.com. As always, that's R-O-L-E. We'll be back in two weeks with Desperado. Until then... Can I offer you some gazpacho? Would have made more sense if we had discussed more of a nervous breakdown, but that was what I had planned. Resistiré, erguido frente a todo, me volveré.